Well, you may have noticed me sort of shuffle up. I had uh, knee surgery this week, nothing major, just one of those nagging reminders that in this life these bodies are frail and fragile and they often fail us. I was getting out of bed and then boom, I tore something on my knee. Not really, but, but I, I, did, uh, I did have to have surgery this week and so I'll be up here for the Lord's Supper as well so I'm not having to navigate these stairs. All right, but praise God, one day he will renew all things. And that's what we get to be hoping in even this morning. Well, uh, this week actually marks the anniversary of Chuck Colson's birth. Born in Boston, Massachusetts, Colson's father was a struggling attorney. His mother was a spendthrift. By the time he was a teen, he had had 15 different addresses around Boston, had been in eight different schools. He got his first taste of politics as a teenager, volunteering for the local governor's race and helping with the campaign, and he said on that campaign, he learned all the tricks, including planting misleading stories in the press, and voting tombstones, and spying on the opposition in every possible way. Well, how that would come back to haunt him. He went on to study at Brown, he got his law degree, and then from there he entered the Marines, and he rose to the rank of captain. His first marriage imploded. By his own accounts, he was a, quote, hard-drinking, chain-smoking, amoral man, a man consumed by self-interest. And yet this hard-charging 38-year-old lawyer in Washington would join the Nixon White House as special counsel in 1969. And Colson was cold, he was calculating, he was ruthless in his memoirs, Nixon writes, that he quickly made Colson his political point man for all his imaginative, dirty tricks. Colson became known around D.C. as the hatchet man. And in November of 72, Nixon won re-election in a landslide. And Colson, who had helped to lead that re-election, was on top of the world. But friends, all that pride and all that brash bravado, the ruthless political hardball, well, that landed him square in the center of the infamous Watergate scandal. His sins, you could say, had finally caught up with him. He was indicted. He was the first in Nixon's administration to be sentenced to federal prison, and it would only be seven weeks later that Nixon himself would step down from office. Colson had gone from the White House to the jailhouse. A colossal fall from grace. So here's my question I want us to be thinking about. What's the way back in such a situation? When one falls so spectacularly, is there even a way back? Because, you know, many of us know what it's like to fail. Many of us know what it's like to sort of make a mess and to be stewing in that mess of our own making. And friends, maybe that was an abortion. Maybe it was an affair. Maybe you were caught lying or cheating or stealing. And you know what? Maybe you're in the midst of such a moment even right now. And you feel as if your world has just come crashing down and you've hit rock bottom. So what do you do? Is there a way through? Well, friends, it's questions Exactly like that, that bring us back this morning to our study in the book of 2 Samuel, our study in the book of 2 Samuel. I invite you to turn there with me now. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. 
which I forgot to note the page number um, in the Bibles and the in the seatbacks before you, but we do have red Bibles in the seatbacks before you. And if you want to find Second Samuel twelve, when all else is lost, go to the table of contents and you can track it down. All right. Now, if you're just joining us, First and Second Samuel really does record the story of how Israel is transformed from a sleepy tribal people into a glorious and great nation. And her first king, as we've seen, is Saul. And as we've noted, Saul certainly looked the part, but he couldn't play the part, which is why God had to what? Raise up a man after his own heart. And that was the shepherd boy, David. And after many twists and turns, David, he finally comes to power. He steamrolls all his enemies. He establishes his capital city. And there's great celebration. There's great jubilation. And by the time we hit 2 Samuel 10, David himself is on top of the world. And then we saw two weeks ago in chapter 11 how that star which had never burned brighter fell spectacularly from the sky. David covets. He steals. He commits adultery. He lies. He kills in order to cover his own tracks. And just like that, the hero has become the villain. Israel's beloved king is no more than a callous and cold-hearted thug. And throughout chapter 11, God isn't mentioned once. He appears silent. It's as if all these shenanigans have escaped his notice. Until we come to those ominous words, the last words of chapter 11, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord or was considered evil in the Lord's eyes. It turns out nothing, in fact, has escaped the Lord's gaze which brings us to chapter 12, so please follow along as I read. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Well, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites." Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, 
I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son, as in, in broad daylight. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. And he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food from them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself more harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he had asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, when the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabban of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. He took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold and, it was, and in it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount, and he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Well, friends, David has fallen spectacularly from grace. Of that, there is no doubt. And yet, as we read through chapter 12, we come to the end and there David is. And he's celebrating, celebrating the birth of his son. He's being crowned again as king over his enemies. It seems that despite David's colossal fall, 
He has some way found a way back. All along the way, it seems, he's undergone in chapter 12, you could say, a kind of transformation. And friends, what does this transformation of David, what does this experience in his life, what does it have to teach us? Because recognize, the question is not, the question is not, do you sin? Now, that's not the pressing question. We all sin, we all fail. Perhaps we won't sin as drastically and, and fail as much as David No, the question is not, do you sin? The question is, what will you do after you sin? That's the question. How do you respond? Where will you turn? If we are going to experience any true change in our own lives, if there is any hope out of the pit that we will inevitably dig for ourselves in our sins, any chance of of rewriting the future and changing course, We need to know four things revealed to us in chapter 12. And the first thing is this. The first is this. Our sins will find us. So the first thing we need to learn is that our sins will find us. You see, David David assumed he'd gotten off scot-free. He had quietly tied up all the loose ends. He had covered his tracks. This sad affair with Uriah was now, he thought, behind him. Only it wasn't, because in chapter 12, the silence is broken and the Lord speaks. For notice, who sends Nathan in verse 1? The Lord is the one who sends Nathan to David. Chapter 12 is not just some confrontation between this precocious prophet and this ruthless royal, right? No, this is a confrontation here between the creator and the created. Only God doesn't have Nathan launch into some vicious invective against David. Doesn't have him calling him a philanderer and a womanizer and adulterer and a murderer. He doesn't come at him straight on. Now what does he do? He begins by telling him a story. Nathan employs a parable. One of the very first parables, in fact, in all the Bible. And the genius of a parable, of course, is it's a kind of back door into the human heart. Right, The story is told and the story draws us in and, and then we begin to feel the moral outrage and it's at that point that, boom, the tables are turned. And so Nathan tells the story, what, of a, of a rich man and of a poor man. The rich man, what, he was loaded. He had flocks and herds for miles. Something, of course, as a shepherd, David could have well appreciated. Whereas the poor man, what did he have? He had one little ewe lamb. You know, who knows how long it took the man to scrape up enough money to buy this little lamb. Who knows how long his children waited eagerly and patiently for their new pet. And we read he raised it. Like one of his own daughters, the text says. It ate from his hand. It drank from its cup, from his cup. It, it lay in his arms. Right, there is not a little lamb that had been treated better or loved more than this little one right here. And yet, those verbs to eat, to drink, to lie with, they're all verbs used back in chapter 11 of what Bathsheba and Uriah did. So the reader is already being clued in, already being clued in that the, who the rich man and who, in fact, the poor man are. But, you know, David is so blinded by his sin, he still doesn't see it. 
And so then we read that a traveler comes, and the cultural expectation was that one would show hospitality and provide shelter and food for such travelers. Only the rich man is unwilling to give up one of his thousands of uh, members of his flock. No, so he greedily and, and lacking all pity, what does he do? He rips that baby ewe lamb out of the desperate clutches of the poor man, and he slaughters it for his guest. And we feel the moral outrage, don't we? Right? Our own blood begins to boil by the injustice of it all. Something in us, friends, all of us cries for justice. All right, so we can talk about all our notions of postmodernism and moral relativism. Right? You have your truth, I have my truth. But deep down, we cannot escape the fact that some things are simply morally wrong. And we can all see it right here. And many of us saw it as well this past week with the images coming out of Israel and the horrific things that have been happened to women and to children, things I won't mention, but things that make our stomachs turn, our blood boils, and what do we do? We cry for justice. And so to David, that's exactly what he does. And we're not even sure Nathan's done with this parable before David's anger flares up into a kind of righteous rage. And what does he say? He says, that man deserves to die. So enraged is David by the story. And with that, Nathan's sword has pierced David's conscience before David even saw the sword. Nathan replies to David, verse 7, You are the man. You, David, are the rich man of the story. The man who incited David's rage, verse 5, the man who deserves to die according to David's own mouth, is none other than David himself. And friends, how that must in that moment have pierced David straight to the heart. Must have stopped him right in his tracks. In that moment, perhaps for the first time, the horror of what he had done back in chapter 11 would begin to settle upon himself. David thought he had put that sordid affair behind him. But friends, one way or another, our sins always find us. Our sins expose us. So just think about your life for a minute. You know, you may be here and you may be 70. You may be here and you may just be 17, right? Any of the above. The reality is every one of us in this room, we have secret sins. We have such sins. The, the kinds of sins that we would desperately prefer to keep quiet, contained, Right? Folks don't know about them. The kind of sins that your spouse or your parents or your best friends, you don't want to talk to them about these things. And if that's you, part of what God is saying to you this morning is you are the man. And you are the woman. And this morning marks maybe your first opportunity to take the first genuine step toward biblical freedom. Because 2 Samuel 12 shatters the notion that God simply turns a blind eye to sin or that sin is somehow escapes his notice or that God is some way indifferent to all the sins of this world. David had assumed that the apparent silence of God indicated the indifference of God. Friends, don't make that mistake. Don't make the same mistake he made. Because when you hide your sin, what you're saying is that your name and your reputation finally matter more than God's name and God's reputation. It's the very thing Jacob 
was leading us so well about in the prayer of confession earlier, right? When you, when you hide your sin, you're saying that it's more important that you be thought of as a holy person than actually being a holy person. It's one of the reasons God intends us, friends, to be part of a committed Christian community. So it's just, it's worth asking yourself, who can play the role of Nathan in your life? Who in your life can play this role that Nathan has for David? Who has the freedom to speak into your life and to confront you, to make things awkward with you? Or have you cut off everyone who would dare speak against you? Have you instead surrounded yourself with people who simply say nice things to you? We all need someone to play the role of Nathan in our own lives because one way or another, our sins will find us just as they found David. And it's in God's grace that that happens now, right? Immediately and not before it's too late. Which brings us to the second thing we need to know. If we're to experience true and genuine change, our sins will find us, yes. But secondly, our sins will judge us. Our sins will judge us. For after calling out David, the Lord takes him then on a guided tour of all the blessings he's been showering upon David, right? Verse 7, I anointed you king. Verse 7, I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Verse 8, I gave your master's house and wives and the house of Israel and Judah. In other words, God saying to David, hey, David, you were hardly deprived. You had everything you needed and more. And if that still wasn't enough, Still wasn't enough. Verse 8, I would add to you as much more. All you had to do, David, was ask and it could have been yours. But you didn't and you took what didn't belong to you. So notice how David's sins come back to judge him. Just as David's sword did not spare Uriah's house, so the sword will not spare David's house. Verse 10. Just as David took the wife of someone close to him, so his wives will be taken and given to someone close to him, verses 11 and 12. And just as David had taken the illicit fruit of Uriah's union, so the fruit of his union with Bathsheba would be taken from him in the loss of a child. Three sins and three curses. The judgment perfectly fits the crime. God was saying, David, make no mistake. I have seen what you've done, and it is serious, and I am not the kind of God who just seeps these things under the rug. Now, just in recognizing that one of the judgments upon David was the loss of a child, I think we just have to stop here for a moment, um, because Sam was praying earlier in the pastoral prayer for the Rousseaus, for Nick, and for Jada, and and if you didn't know, you were learning in that prayer that uh, earlier this week, they awoke to be celebrating Jada's 19th birthday, and yet later on that day, she would be rushed in for an emergency cesarean, and, and there would be lots of complications. She would miraculously survive, Jada would, and the baby Luca, 26 weeks old, fought, struggled for life, and yet tragically, on Friday passed. And... It's, it's a tragic loss for the couple. It's a tragic loss for all of us. We all feel it, family, friends, church, community. Right? There is perhaps no greater pain as a pain of losing a child. 
And so I think I just feel the need to be clear here that while the loss of David's child was a particular judgment against his sin, that does not mean that the loss of every child can be traced to one of our sins. We can't make such a causal one-to-one relationship. right? Job lost all of his children. They were all taken from him. And yet, what do we know about Job? He was an upright man, a blameless man who feared God. Jesus was asked by his disciples in John 9, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? To which Jesus says, you know what? Neither of them sinned. Rather, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. Friends, God's ways are often, they're inscrutable to us. And yet when we cannot trace his hand, what are we called to do? We're called to trust his heart. We're called to look to his character. Because the Lord knows of all people what it means to lose a son. And so he's uniquely able to comfort the Rousseaus and their afflictions as we too seek to comfort them with the comfort with which we ourselves have received from God. But David had specifically mocked God in his sin. All the sins against Uriah and Bathsheba. Notice how God understands everyone is ultimately and finally an affront against him. Verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And yet God's word we see is just an extension of himself. These judgments have come, verse 10, because you have despised me, the Lord says. And in all of this, David had, verse 14, left we be confused, utterly scorned the Lord. Right? We're witnessing how every sin we commit against others it is finally again an assault upon God himself. Our sins will judge us. And on that day there will be no place to run and no place to hide. Which leads us to the third thing we must know. If there is to be true and genuine change in our lives, yeah, our sins will find us. Yes, they will judge us. But thirdly, and maybe most importantly, our sins can be forgiven us. Our sins can be forgiven us. Now, at this point, put yourself in David's shoes. He has heard words of these judgments. And how might you respond if you were in his shoes? I know I might be tempted to respond something like, hey, wait a minute, God. I mean, I mean let me explain. I, I, really, I didn't really want to do it. I, I couldn't help myself. I was just kind of born this way. Or, you know, wait, wait, God, it's not really quite as bad as it seems. I know chapter 11 reads horribly, but it, it's not really that bad. You know, Uriah, after all, wasn't exactly a saint, okay? And Bathsheba, well, she didn't exactly fight me off. And remember, hey, listen, it's war. Sometimes there's collateral damage. Tragic things happen. Or David could have said, hey, time out, God. Isn't all this judgment a bit harsh? I mean, let's discuss this. Certainly we can work something out. I mean, I've had a pretty good track record so far. Remember Goliath? Could have responded that way. Or wait, God, you know, what about Bathsheba? Where all the focus is on me. What, What about her? Or what about Joab, right? He issued the order. What about them? See, David could have done so many things. He could have explained. He could have deflected. He could have justified. He could have rationalized. He could have negotiated. He could have blame shifted. The kinds of things we do all the time in our own sin. David could have done any number or all of those. 
But notice David does none of those things. Not one. He simply confessed, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Just two words in Hebrew, that's it. He's saying, I, right? That's what he began, I, nobody else. David's not wagging his fingers at others. He's not trying to point the camera toward them. He's rather pointing it toward his own heart. He's saying, I have done this, me and me alone. Because I have sinned, he said. Sinned, not the proverbial, you know, mistakes were made. Not that kind of language. Not accidents happen. Or, you know, passions just got the better of me. That's not what David says. He says, I have sinned. And sinned what? Against the Lord. Because all sin, as we've seen, is finally against him. You know, we read Psalm 51 earlier in the service because that really serves as as David's journal, if you will. It's a record of his personal reflections and prayers following this confrontation here in chapter 12 with Nathan. And what does David say in Psalm 51.4? Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That right there is the confession of a penitent man. That's a man in that statement who accepts full responsibility for his actions. He doesn't come to God trying to bargain with him. He's not trying to come to God trying to commute his sentence in some way. No, he owns his sentence. Psalm 51 verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David even goes on to say in Psalm 51 verse 5. He's like, you think I'm bad. Right? You don't know the half of it. I was born guilty. This sin stuff just runs right through my blood, David says. And that right there is genuine confession and contrition. To which, notice Nathan immediately replies. Chapter 12, verse 13, 2 Samuel. The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. I wonder if you read the passage this week. How did you hear those words? How did you hear that immediate response of Nathan to David? Did you find those words comforting? Or did you find them perhaps a bit frustrating? I mean, imagine you're Uriah's father. Imagine you're Bathsheba's mother. And you're like, whoa, time out. That's it? That's, that's all David gets? That's, that's his whole judgment? I mean, he's just going to be let off? He, He's not even made to squirm a little bit. You know, if we were in the position of God, we might, you know, take the moment and maybe rub David's nose in it a little bit. Maybe leave him to stew over things for a little while. We might want David to at least wallow in his guilt for some time. Maybe to plead, to bed, to agonize, whatever it might be. We might be looking for him to do these things. Maybe just a silent treatment. But friends, God does none of those things, does he? God's not like us. He's gracious. So gracious is God that in verse 13, that grace, it's fair to say that grace is scandalous. It's scandalous because it seems as if David has almost gotten off too easy. Because David showed no compassion for the poor man, and yet here is God showing immediate compassion upon him. Though David is deserving of death, what, for the adultery? Yes. For the murder? Yes. Not to mention, what else has he done? He's lied, he's cheated, he's stolen, right? He's broken basically half the Ten Commandments in chapter 11. He's done all of that. And he doesn't die. 
Why doesn't he die? You know, two weeks ago, that's the question Jeff Ward asked in the evening service. Right? Because David deserves to die. But friends, you know, we can similarly ask, why didn't Adam and Eve die back in the garden? Why weren't they immediately killed when they tasted of the forbidden fruit? Or why wasn't Israel, why weren't they wiped out? Because they, like David, had jumped basically into the bed uh, with foreign gods. Friends, why aren't you and me? Why aren't you and I, why aren't we dead? All die, the Bible says, because all sin. All sin at a spiritual level is a capital offense. So Adam and Eve, David, Israel, us, why are we still standing? The only answer is the character of God. That's it. He's gracious and scandalously so. He is not wanting any to perish, but all what to come to repentance. Friends, God is the judge. He is, and praise God, he's a faithful judge. But even more, we're seeing God is gracious, the one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, the constant refrain about God in the Old Testament. And you know, back in 2 Samuel 7, God had made an unconditional promise to David. God promised that when he, David, would commit iniquity, you can see how 2 Samuel 7 was already anticipating chapter 11. When he would commit iniquity, God would discipline him. And yet, chapter 7, verse 15, but God says, my steadfast love will not depart from him. Right? God is being faithful here to his promises. David's not faithful to his promises. We're not often faithful to ours, but God is faithful to his every time. So friend, if you've come here this morning and you've come thinking, you know what, I've got these secret sins. And if you only knew, and there's no way the Lord could look past it. There's no way he could, he could put those sins away from me as far as the east is from the west. If you're convinced God has forever turned his face from you. right? Forgiveness just isn't possible, you think. Friend, if God can forgive David, there is no doubt he can forgive you. No doubt he can forgive me. There is no sin beyond the reach of God's grace. Not David's sin, not your sins this morning. Your sins can be forgiven you. But it begins with a kind of divine confrontation in that sin, followed by genuine confession and contrition. 1 John 1, 9, For if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The gospel begins with the word of condemnation. No doubt about it. But it never ends there. It also offers a word, what, of invitation and a word of restoration. Friend, if you will come to God, if you will go to him with a broken and a contrite heart, he will not despise you. He will be gentle with you. He will be merciful with you as he was with David, right? David pleads God's mercy in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, David says nothing about all the wonderful things he's done. I don't know if you noticed that. He makes no futile promises about what he will do. He's not talking about how, oh, Lord, I'm going to change. You know, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to be a different kind of guy. He doesn't go that way. He simply pleads God's mercy, and that's it. And that can be a scary place to be. 
But no one who has ever made the mercy of God the sole basis of their plea, no one has ever been turned away. Jesus, if you read the Gospels, he actually turned away people for a lot of reasons. But he never turned anyone away for trusting him too deeply and relying upon him too exclusively for grace. And yet this confession and contrition of sin, it doesn't mean we entirely escape the consequences of sin. Right? Someone always dies as a result of sin. Either we will die for our sins or someone else will die for them. But someone will die. God's forgiveness, it's marvelous, it's gratuitous, scandalous even, and it's costly. The child would be the one who would die in David's place. Friends, the paradox of forgiveness is that it is both free to us and yet it is costly because a son of David had to become our substitute. For one day, that ultimate son born to David's line, Jesus Christ, would be the one who would serve as that substitute, dying for the sins of the world. So if you've come and you've never truly confessed your sin, if you've never really cared or even thought much or believed much in the notion of forgiveness, your sins will find you. They will judge you. But they can absolutely be forgiven you. For Jesus Christ has died, what the righteous one for the unrighteous. And even more than that, he's been raised so that all who look to Jesus and trust in him can be forgiven. You too can hear, the Lord will put away your sin. You will not die. Those are not just words for David. Those are words for us. Because a broken and contrite heart the Lord will never despise. And friends, what does such a forgiven man look like? Well, recognize that's exactly what verses 15 to 23 are all about. Because if, as I read the passage, or if, as you read it this week, you know, a question we have to be asking, a question I was left asking myself partway through the week, is why all the space given to the child's death? Sadly, we know the child's going to die, so why devote so much time to it? Notice who the camera is following. In verses 15 to 23, the camera is following David. As much as our attention might be on the child, our attention needs to be on David. For when Saul was confronted, right, by God back in 1 Samuel 15, you know what Saul said? I have sinned against the Lord. Sound familiar? It's the very thing David said. They, when they're first confronted, they say the very same things. But then what happens after Saul says, I have sinned against the Lord? Well, he goes on to do what we often do. He then goes on to excuse his sins. He blame shifts some. He talks about oh, what the, all the people would have thought if he had actually believed and followed God rightly. Notice David does none of that, and that is the point. He does none of what Saul did. He's not just a picture of confession and contrition, but what we're seeing in 15 to 23 is we're seeing the picture of someone who's gone about a genuine course correction. David is becoming a picture of true repentance. For yes, he prays and he pleads for the child. You know, why do that after God has already promised 
what he has promised? Well, David says why he did it. Verse 22, he says, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me and the child might live. David knows he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve to be even alive. But that's how grace works. And he knows it and he knows grace is God's forte. That's what he's an expert in. And so David continues to plead with God. He is no longer rebelling against God. What is he doing here? He's running to God. He's going to God. And he's grieving not just the consequences of sin. He's grieving sin itself. He knows he's got nothing apart from God. He's got no hope without this God. And so when his prayers aren't answered in the way that he wanted, in the way that he had pleaded, when God said no, notice David did not fly off on some fit of rage. He didn't go and throw his Bible against the wall or toss it in the trash, nor did he wall himself off from everybody else and just stop going to church, become bitter at life. Notice he didn't even ignore the gathering for worship. Look there in verse 20. As soon as he hears about the child's death, what does he do? He basically he shaves, he showers, he, he puts on some cologne, and he goes to the house of the Lord, and he worships. He worships. Just like Nick and Jada have come to do with us this morning. David shows up at church the very next Sunday, praising God. How does he do that? Because he's seen that the Lord's steadfast love is better than life, and so his lips will praise him. Genuine faith turns to God, not away from God. Right? Free grace produces repentance. It doesn't just produce license for more sin. It produces genuine faith, never fear. Repentance is not just about trying harder. It's about trusting more fully. David recognized there in verse 23, he cannot bring the child back to life. And so he says, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David knows one day, too, he will die. Like his son, he will return to the earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. David knows the temporal judgments may remain, but the eternal consequences have been dealt with, and that frees him to worship. Our sins will find us. They will judge us. Perhaps most importantly, they can be forgiven us. Lastly, briefly, fourthly, our sins won't nullify God's promises to us. A fourth thing I want us to see, our sins won't nullify God's promises to us. Because honestly, isn't that what we fear? When we really screw up, right, when we sin big, we think what? God's got to be done with me now. He can't possibly be for me. Not after all I've done. I've told him how many times I'm not going to go down this road. And I went down that road again, at this time worse than ever. God can't be for me anymore. Our sin calls into question God's promises and calls into question his love. And yet, what do we find at the close of chapter 12? A child is born. God promised David, remember, that he would have a descendant upon his throne. And right there, God is being faithful to his promises. And what about God's love? Well, notice what the son is to be called. Solomon means probably something like son of peace. And yet, the Lord gives a word to Nathan to tell David to call the child Jedediah, which means beloved or loved of the Lord. 
God's promises, God's love, they were no more removed from David after his sins, friends, than they are not removed from us after our own sins. And notice how the chapter closes. It closes a lot like it opened back in the very beginning of chapter 11. It closes with this war with the Ammonites. And notice we're taken back to the front lines of the war with them. And what happens? Well, this time David is there. He's fighting against the Ammonites. The man, remember, who was AWOL, right? Who would abandon his post back in the chapter 11. He is now obediently as God's king fighting God's enemies. Because true change, because friends, genuine repentance isn't just about confession and contrition. It again entails a genuine course correction. And that's what's happening in David's own life. He is walking in faith. He is, at this point, a changed man. So notice, a king is again crowned, and a son is born, and victory against God's enemies is secured. David has sinned mightily. Yes, he has. And the consequences that are coming in chapters 13 to 20, we're going to see those consequences are gut-wrenching. But make no mistake, right? God's promises... God's love, those things have not been taken from David, and they are not taken from us when we trust in David's greater son. Rather, those promises and that love is being reaffirmed and ratified again at the close of chapter 12. David knows, despite all he's done, somehow, inexplicably, God is still for him. And in that, David finds rest. And friends, that's exactly what happened to Chuck Colson. Nixon's hatchet man, as they called him, well, he would come to find the hatchet was about to fall upon him. If you know the story, there was a great federal probe after the Watergate affair that was underway, and Colson had become one of the key targets in that probe. And one night, somewhat despairing, he drove to the house of an acquaintance that turned out to be the CEO of Raytheon, and he'd represented this man in Washington in the past. And, and he arrived at the front door. And when Colson arrived, it's not like Colson came clean. But the man could tell something was eating at Colson's conscience. And so he went in and he grabbed a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And he read one of the chapters and sections on pride. A proud man, said Lewis, is always walking through life looking down on other people and other things. As a result, he cannot see something above himself, something immeasurably superior. He cannot see God, much like David could not back in chapter 11. And this Fortune 500 CEO told Colson right there on his porch late at night, told him about Jesus. And to quote from Colson's own autobiography, he said, I listened attentively, but I didn't let on my own need. When he offered to pray, I thanked him but said no. I'd see him sometime again and I'd read Lewis's book. But when I got in the car that night, I couldn't drive it out of the driveway. Ex-Marine captain, White House tough guy, I was crying too hard, calling out to God. I didn't know what to say. I just knew I needed Jesus and he came into my life. You see in Colson's life, what did you have? You had a, a kind of divine intervention. A confrontation followed by what? Confession, contrition. And if you know his life, what followed was genuine course correction. 
because Colson did what no one expected him to do. He actually pleaded guilty. He didn't try to plead not guilty. He didn't seek to negotiate a lighter sentence. He didn't point the finger. Colson knew, like David, he had broken the law. He had sinned against God. Nobody had forced him to do it. He and he alone was responsible. And so he went to prison. But he went to prison a changed man. And there he began what we know as prison fellowship ministries. And, and once released, he would go on. He'd win the Templeton Prize for all the good that he had done. He'd serve in other White Houses. He would have an amazing restoration, much like David. Friends, again, the key question is not, will you sin? Do you sin? Of course you do. Yes, you will. The question is, what will you do after you sin? And if you want to experience true change, genuine change, it begins with a divine confrontation, followed by confession, contrition, genuine course correction. The question is, will that describe you? Will that describe you even this week? Let's pray.